Good morning. Happy Monday. Welcome to Love Babs, Love Talk on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. Start of another great week. And you might notice that Love Babs, Love Talks, Babs Rolls Ivy is not the person you're listening to right now. Babs is away on a writing retreat for a week. And I'm in here trying to do her justice in her stead as Paul Bass. Welcome to a great another week in New Haven, even if we are starting with cloudy skies. And we got a lot to talk about this morning, including at this count, two bank failures in three days. And what that's going to mean, we're going to have the State Bank Commissioner, George Perez. He's scheduled to come on at 920 to talk about what that's going to mean for us in Connecticut, as well as what are some of the banking issues that we face right now. And but first, I want to talk about the other big story this morning, which is the Oscars. And everything, everywhere, all at once took seven Oscars last night. And a man who knows more about movies than anyone else in town, Arnold Gorlick, is welcome is joining us here in the studio. Arnold, welcome to Love Babs Love Talk on WNHHFM, and thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm flattered to be invited. Thank you. And Arnold, as everybody knows, used to run the Madison Arts Center for how many, for two decades, right, Arnold? How many years did you run it? Twenty-two years. Twenty-two years before that. Well, uh, you can subtract COVID, I guess. Uh, Including COVID, it's 22 years. Mass Arts, which was definitely the premier cinema spot in the state. And before that, he was the welcoming presence at York Square and made that the premier cinema spot in the state. And Arnold's going to help us break down the Oscars. So, Oscar, you, uh, Arnold, you did watch the Oscars last night. I did. And did you watch them at a bar with all sorts of people? Did you watch it cut up at home? or? No, I watched them um, in my attic where we have the TV, and I watched it alone. My wife had no interest whatsoever. So here I was. <laughs> so how was it, R? What did you think? What's the big takeaway from last night's well, Oscars? There's a part of me which doesn't take, take the Oscars seriously. What it fundamentally is is advertising mm-hmm. and promotion. And <clears throat> so it's not exactly a cold system to really choose choose the best, and it's hard when you're dealing with... a things to choose the best there's lots of background politics or lots of background things which influence things for example i was really rooting for austin uh butler who played elvis to mm-hmm. win best actor one of the truly greatest on-screen performances i've ever seen that said mm-hmm. let me confess i didn't see the whale mm-hmm. i purposely haven't seen the whale why would you purposely not see a film it ha- had to do with what I read on how it dealt with the issue of obesity ah, and, and yeah. so on. It, it, that, but the background story with this is Brendan Fraser had to win. He was an A-list star back in the 80s, and then everything dried up, and he couldn't find work. He was out of work for years, <coughs> and then he got this role. And I believe it's one of the great acting performances of this year or last year that we're able to see. But the fact that this was a comeback story, I think, motivated people who voted in his category. Only actors vote in the actors category Hmm. because they were touched by the backstory of this fine actor out of work for years, maybe a decade or more, couldn't find any work and then finds this role and is now nominated for the Academy Award. That's part of the things that go go into it. That's also what happened with Best Supporting Actor, correct? Uh, that wasn't the same story. The guy had that, had, had had a great career, and then he hadn't gotten it for a long but time. No one was back. invested in his career. No one uh, heard of him that, uh, before. Brendan Fraser was a big star. Right, right. Good point. So there wasn't that collapse. It was nobody 
nobody noticed them. Mm-hmm. So how did you feel about the... So the big story, obviously, was everything everywhere at all at once, which is that sort of sci-fi, martial arts, uh, multiverse, mind-blown movie, in my opinion. And it won seven Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Actors, Best uh, Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress. Did that surprise you? Do you think it was deserved? Because you just saw the movie, correct? Uh, I saw the movie the night before. And uh, I'm going to go against the grain a little bit. I didn't dislike the movie. But I thought there were two better movies which handled the same subject oh. of multi-realities. One is Run, Lola, Run, the German movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other one is Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow. Mm-hmm. I thought both of those movies were better movies. Mm. I thought that Everything Everywhere All at Once was overstated and overstimulating. What I admired about the movie is, because I love the medium of movies so much, there are certain things that only movies can do. Well, Everything, everywhere, all at once could have only been a movie. Can't that's true. And one thing that really interested me, now by the time you saw it, Arnold, you kind of knew what to expect, correct? Even though you can't, there's so many scenes you can't. When I saw it back in the theater when it opened, I had no idea what it was going to be. So here I'm watching this thing, what's this, martial arts? It's kind of weird. Or was this like one of those art house movies about a you know Chinese immigrant family at the laundry, and then all of a sudden it's going off the rails in these really kind of exciting, fun ways. And by the end, it was interesting to me how there were four, five storylines at a time with every scene by the time they established that. They put a lot of work into each of those storylines, like a lot of elaborate right. plot and narrative, a lot of, lot of elaborate um, scenery and costumes. What did you think about that? Is that part we thought was over the top? Because I enjoyed that over the top part. Do you think it was over the top? They had stuff like, you know, uh, hot dog faces and dildos and all that kind of stuff. No. Uh, it, first of all, I didn't understand about the hot dog <laughs> finger. I, <laughs> I just didn't understand what was necessary about it or what it did. But I just thought that, it was, that everything was coming at me too fast, mm. too, too densely. And... My emotions weren't catching up with it. By the way, I've, I've always had a crush on Michelle Yeoh. Uh-huh. So well, I, it's an I interesting. Learned. It's an interesting thing. It's about too fast, too much, because that was definitely their point, right? Yeah. I mean, the part that got me the most as a dad was when they're the rocks, and the the daughter rock tries to keep getting away from the mother rock, and then falls right. off the cliff. That was just. That was right. I just thought brilliant. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the kind of movie. I don't know. I don't know. You saw the movie a couple of days ago. It stays with me months later. That doesn't often happen with movies. Oh, it's it's going to stay with me. The imagery, it, it's powerful. There's no question about it. But but you think it didn't deserve seven Oscars? No, I I can't say that. That's what I'm trying to say. I don't take the Academy Awards that seriously. Even when I was working in, in the business, I like to see what, what would win. I remember there was only one time that I was really would really be upset if somebody didn't win. And Marion Cotillard played Edith Piaf uh-huh. in La Vie en Rose. To this day, I still think that's the greatest on-screen performance I've ever seen in my life. Mm. She's French. It was a foreign language movie, and I thought they would never give it to her. And I said to whomever I was watching the movie with, I'm going to give up my passport if Marion Cotillard doesn't win the Oscar. And she won it. Oh, good. She's so got your passport. Because, you know, yeah, that was the, the Trump years. You might have needed it. We're talking to Arnold Gorlick. Who knows more no, about... it wasn't the Trump years. This oh. was in the 90s. Oh, okay. okay. 
No, not queen. the nineties, the early two thousands. Okay, so it's something like that. You got the early Bush years. Or, or something like we're that. talking to Arnold Gorlick. Until recently he he started and he ran Mass in Art Cinemas and he's the most knowledgeable guy in movies I know. Lives in Westville, and we're talking about the Oscars. You talk about the Oscars, you can't take it too seriously. You said it's an advertising vehicle for the industry. It is a national touchstone. Do you still think you think it's true that it's still one of the few cultural moments like the Super Bowl? Although I don't watch either of them personally, but that so many people watch from so many different backgrounds, a lot of people get together to watch it, that it, it somewhat forms a common reality. Like when that stupid thing happened with the Will Smith slap last year, everybody was talking about it, right? You know, and they, they'll be talking about everything every year all at once. Do you think there's some value in that, Arnold? And do you think it's true that the Oscars remains a cultural touchstone, something that brings a lot of people in, a, in our nation together around a common event and story? I think it's true. I, know, I don't know what the ratings were last night, but they've been in dramatically declining rating, having dramatically de declining rating situation. I, you know, before COVID, each year, fewer and fewer people watching the Oscars. I don't know about globally, though, but mm -hmm. I knew in the I know in the United States. Have you heard what the ratings were last I night? I don't. And do we need the Oscars? Yeah, I think it's nice. Just to have that. Harry says he couldn't get through the complete movie. I was not impressed with everything everywhere all at once. Harry Joseph, our station manager, just was, was chiming well, I wasn't in. as impressed with it as you, as I said. Yeah. Uh, no, I it was my favorite movie I've seen probably this century. <laughs> it just blew me away so much, Arnold. I just couldn't stop thinking about that movie. <laughs> that I was really... blown away by Elvis. The only one I didn't like in the movie won an Oscar. I didn't love Jamie Lee Curtis, and I can't figure out if that's because I didn't like her acting or because I thought the role wasn't written great, if it was a little overstated. Whereas I thought the daughter, who also is in Miss Maisel, I thought she was terrific. I would have given her yeah. the supporting. I don't know. Yeah, she cried through the whole evening. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> here's some happiness. Tears of happiness. Now, Arnold, you had one take about a movie that didn't make it, or at least an actress who didn't make it, Danielle Deadweiler, who was in Emmett Till. Did she? Did Emmett Till show up last night? Do you think it should have? There's no doubt that the movie Till should have shown up. And I don't care if it would be nominated for Best Picture or not, but Danielle Deadweiler played Mamie Till, Emmett Till's mother. That truly is one of the greatest on-screen performances I've ever seen. Really? There was a moment where she was in the courthouse in Mississippi, and it was on a platform. And, of course, the racism was filling the courtroom as well, how she was treated, how people talked to her, her lawyers, her entourage, and so on. And the camera was looking up at her as she was testifying, as they were asking a provocative uh, questions like, how do you know that's your son? Because mm. you're supposed to know the story of Emmett Till. Right. He was just, he was disfigured beyond recognition by his beating. In about 10 minutes with an unbroken camera, you could see the contortions in the woman's face, her fluttering eyes, her eyes rolling, her grief, her authenticity in talking about what it meant to see her son in that state and who he was and what her relationship with him was. For that 10 minutes alone of the unbroken, it was it was one full take. It took my breath away. It was one of the great performances truly this year. That she wasn't nominated for Best Actress, I think is a crime. Why do you the think reason, that was about the politics of the This was about, maybe uh, politics had to do with it, but... Wouldn't it be the opposite? Isn't there a, a... 
have that whole phrase years ago, hashtag Oscar so white. Don't they go out of their way now to show that they're going to recognize a civil rights theme? Yeah, uh, but a simple thing has to happen. I don't know what the number is, but a critical mass of uh, people have to see the movie and be able to vote on it. Oh, you think they didn't see the movie? Did the movie not get enough attention? It didn't reach that critical mass of uh, members of the Academy seeing it. It was streaming online, but I insisted on seeing, uh, I knew how badly I wanted to see this movie. I was 10 years old when it happened. Mm -hmm. And I remember there was no surprises in it because I knew the story intimately. The question is, how do you tell the story again generations later so it has impact and freshness, correct? And did they succeed in doing that? I think so. I think so. You know, since it's a movie for me that had no surprises because it was just telling of a historical event, I think faithfully, my former film buyer was very touched by it. And he didn't know anything about Emmett Till. He's 10 mm. years younger than I. And he's not a reader. So what, do you, what is going on with movies these days? We came back for the pandemic. People, some people are going back to the theaters, but streaming changed the industry forever. Is there... How do we watch movies now, and how will we be watching movies years to come, and what will be the fate of in-person movies? That's why I got out. Um... Uh, movies have lost their aura, have lost their immediacy. There is no substitution without the collective of watching a movie in a movie theater with other people. Uh -huh. Sometimes when we laugh at something on a movie, it's because if we laugh spontaneously, we're sometimes embarrassed that we laughed at what we just saw. Uh -huh. Sitting in a crowded movie theater, to be embarrassed that you just laughed creates more, creates more laughter. You don't have this anymore. People walking out in the movie in droves saying, Gee, I got to tell my friend Paul Bass he's got to see this movie. It doesn't happen anymore. There's it. There's been a cultural breakdown. There's been more atomization of the society. I made a joke about this, never thinking that this day would come so soon. It was going to come with or without COVID. COVID just accelerated it. Mm -hmm. But I used to say there's going to be a new category for the Oscars: best movie made for a cell phone. <laughs> But Arnold, okay, you're being like you and I and most of us of our generations can be, which is the world's changing. We think we're losing something, which we are. Are we gaining anything? Is there more of like an auteur style based on even short attention span um, work on video? Or is there a kind of flowering, independent DIY cinema emerging longer form on, you know, Vivo or other kinds of platforms? Let me say this. One genre of movie is dead in movie theaters. Art. Art house movies, which I played. There's nothing to play. Top Gun was a big hit, what they call a blockbuster. And it... it right, sequel, sequels of easy to get right. the people in. And I don't think that Martin Scorsese was wrong when he talked about the Marvel... Uh, comics movies as not being true cinema. I actually share, share that with him. But are there other avenues for this? I only see a downside. But it's is there more good work being produced on different venues, just not in a mass way that we're all going to see it the way that we have lost, as you said, going all together and all having watched this and saying, I'm going to show my friends and hearing how other people react. Are there other positive developments and how video can I be guess done that there are more people who are breaking through in the in movie making but to me it's an inexorable loss i 
I don't. I'm not questioning whether it's an execrable loss. I'm just asking, will there be positive for like people who don't have the means, who wouldn't have broken into Hollywood before, who, unlike Robert Townsend, aren't going to be able to max out their credit cards and get incredibly lucky to make, you know, what was it called, Hollywood <laughs> Shuffle, right? Like that doesn't happen that often. But but for most for most cases, people now can kind of do some really talented people with no ins, no training, could probably do pretty good work on their computers and put together. Well, look at it. The editor of Everything Everywhere All at Once, he says, hey, this is my second movie. <laughs> the 35, the people who made it, right. So right. now, would that have shown in your theater? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely it would have shown in my theater. So before I let you go, Arnold, anything optimistic you could say about the Oscars, about the future of new forms of video, or are we just going to say it's all got hell and it's over? <laughs> It's a big loss to me. Yeah, of course. Of my course, passion in my life, I don't... I'm glad there's a way for movies not to disappear. But Marshall McLuhan even wrote about what it means to look, be, look at a television versus a movie screen. Mm -hmm. And the television hypnotizes our eyes. There's natural movement. We naturally scan, according to Marshall McLuhan, anything we look at. We cannot fail but scan. Our eyes move. Apparently, television and its pixelation freezes our eyes where we don't do that scanning and mm. experiencing thing as we do experience a movie as we do in real life when we're looking at something. Television oh. takes something away and numbs us. And what about um? What about smaller screens? Is that even more severe? Because that's doing havoc on our attention spans and our connection to other human beings in the natural world. I say every day. I, dream about going back to a world before computers and cell phones it's it's uh, i mean one of the daniels talked about how fast life is moving and it's movies take years to make but the internet is moving in milliseconds yeah and how how to keep up with that it's hard, hard to stop and think sometimes right but i, I am just, wondering also i feel uh, i'm in a state of grief i'm wondering Arnold, and this is something I'm not excited about or even happy about, but I'm wondering whether we're actually evolving into different kinds of species, the way we're going to function with continual notification and assistance and monitoring of AI devices, whether I don't do this, but so many people do it with their heartbeats and their steps and checking their blood sugar levels, but also what you're going to buy, what you're going to watch, what you're going to listen to. When I listen to music now, when we were growing up listening to the radio, wait to see what come on. I now actually love when YouTube sometimes just plays different music for me based right. on its algorithm. But there's also something a little scary about it. <laughs> yeah, what's scary about that is you don't discover something new. Because well, I do actually. I've discovered on... more new music oh, because of that. than I, I Probably last year than I had in the last 20 years. Well, so, Netflix, based on what you've looked at, yeah. offers you uh, uh, narrow choices based on who they think you are already by an algorithm. Right. It's playing towards you. Uh, so much of it works on uh, uh, short attention spans. They know that exciting you, making you angry, or high emotional things, it doesn't make you more thoughtful where there are complex things to think about. I agree with that. Although I will say that I got a 30-minute jam band file from something they saw from my algorithm that sounded pretty good that I would have never heard this Texas too well. I'm with you about like what social media has done and how the news has evolved and the way it's always supposed to excite and upset you and rather have you be thoughtful. 
I do see some glimmer of hope sometimes of how it can be used well, especially in the music field. Because when we really think about Arnold, we grew up with Top 40, right? WABC. Right. So, like, that was just a few songs, right? right. And, when, and when you talk about the news, everyone watched Huntley Brinkley and, or Cronkite. It really was not a big... People long for those days where we watched the same thing and trusted it, but there's also the other side that you didn't get to hear as many variety. And now it's Tower of Babel with so many different voices competing and it becomes a clamor as you said it becomes appealing to us not to think but to just react quickly but i do see possibilities and i see it in video too i see possibilities for voices to emerge throughout the cracks you know when you did art houses that wasn't mass market it got to be right you were ahead of your time and the, and the formula you hit on became you know, a good formula at the risk of flattering myself is um distributors i'm talking about big distributors sony warners would call on me, my film buyer of the theater, to open a picture, let's say Finding Forrester or something like that. Uh, do you have a screen for us on January 24th? Why? We want to open it at the Madison Art Cinemas and we're prepared to clear the shoreline. Now, I couldn't demand that they clear the shoreline to play the movie with me. They had motivations for that, and I, that would be off topic to tell you what their motiv motivations were. Mm -hmm. But... Um, they were relying on me because the standing of the cinema was so strong that they believed that by opening in the Madison Art Cinemas, it conferred an aura or a mystique on the picture that could establish it in a way that opening it in the multiplexes wouldn't. So I would have it exclusively sometimes for six weeks, and then it would expand as if it was established locally and so on. They were very stingy with their uh, opening platforms, and I was always grateful and flattered to be part of their first platforms. That's that. that's exciting. And what year was that, what year was that, Arnold? Up until 2018. Wow. 2019, it ended. Um, what, so that was before the pandemic that ended that, and what was the reason? Um, habits were changing. Streaming had already made its, uh, had already made its impact. What was shocking to me is when Paramount, Universal, Warner Brothers closed their screening rooms and their offices in New York City and bought out their heads of distribution. Mm. All of a sudden, these are people who knew me for decades and I knew them for decades. It's not that I was important, but I knew them when they were just doing ad placement in, for local papers throughout the country and now the heads of studios. So that was the continuum for me and I would see them at dinners and conventions and whatever. Mm. But all of a sudden, when they were calling on me because they also knew that I treated their movies as if they entrusted me with their child, that I didn't just put it on the screen, put the posters up in the trailers, hope everybody came. I made curtain appearances. I talked from my heart if a movie had to be seen that, the, that my clientele wouldn't get to see if it weren't in this smaller venue. Mm -hmm. And we grow up. So... They, uh, I, I lost my train. That's of okay. That's okay, Arnold. I want to thank you for joining us this morning. Who better to talk about the morning after the Oscars and the future of the industry than with Arnold Gorlick, the visionary founder of Madison Art Cinema, resident of Westville, and always has an original take. Arnold, thanks for joining us on Love Babs Love Talk. Now thank we're going to talk about banks, a much happier subject. Can with I still the, watch, the, or do I have to get off of Zoom? You should get off, but if you listen to go to the New Haven Independent website yeah. on the top I left you can click up there arnold thank you so much for joining us thank you're listening to love babs love talk but you're not listening to babs you're not listening to babs rolls ivy you're listening to paul bass filling in for the week for babs doing my best 
And we're going to talk about the biggest story in America now with um, the person in Connecticut who's in the best position to help us figure it out, George Perez. George Perez is the commissioner of banking for the state of Connecticut. And of course, we know him in New Haven because he grew up here in the Hill and he was the president of our board of alders and was sort of our, our big star going to Hartford. George Perez, thank you so much for joining us this morning at WNHHFM. My pleasure, Paul, and thank you for the invitation and opportunity to talk to your listeners. And, you know, I'm looking forward. We said you're going to come on one day for a longer interview about all the great work you're doing at the Banking Commission. You are the longest-serving state commissioner, am I right? I think I need one more year. Oh, yeah? Who, uh, In terms of people who are currently commissioners in the Lamont administration? Oh, no, no, the Lamont administration, I think I'm tied with with, uh, with the. DSS commissioner. <laughs> so what were you referring to? Are you going to be the longest serving banking commissioner ever? Yes, correct. Oh, not bad. Not bad, George. When, was it 2018 or 2017 when you became the commissioner? About 2015. Oh, you see how fast years go. Oh, my goodness. You look yeah. younger than you did, but must be, must be doing good things for you. So, George, the biggest story now is that twice in the last three days, not in Connecticut, but twice in the last three days, a bank has failed. We had our second biggest bank failure in the history of the United States with Silicon Valley Bank. This is stuff you know, of course. I'm just filling in the listeners. On Friday, and then a second bank, Signature Bank in New York, failed yesterday. How does, what's the reaction here in Connecticut? What does this mean for us? Well, the first thing I would like to say to people is don't panic. The banks in Connecticut are strong. Uh, and the situation that happened in California and New York are much different than what you find in Connecticut, in particular in, in California, which is the biggest one, which is the one I'm gonna focus on the most. The customer base was primarily high-tech, venture capitalists, uh, fintechs, really big companies. And about 80% of the depositors had more than $250,000 in the bank, which as people may remember from school uh, or reading in the paper, uh, FDIC only insured deposit up to 100,000 and recently, you know, like five, six years ago, they changed that to 250. The good news is that uh, the Biden administration slashed FDIC, Federal Reserve, which are independent, but they're considered to be part of the administration. I've announced, announced yesterday at this around 615, that they're gonna make all depositors home. What that means is it doesn't matter if you had a dollar, if you had, like in some cases, some companies have $3 billion in, in that bank, uh, the deposits are going to be made whole. And starting today, when the bank opens, they should be able to have access to it, and they should be able to have their online banking and all that. Now, if they walk into the bank and they want to withdraw $3 billion, that's going to be a little hard because no branch keeps that kind of catch at hand. But it should be business as usual because the FDIC and the Federal Reserve, but in particular, is the FDIC because it's the FDIC insurance, have decided that they're going to make deposits whole. What does that mean for... Now, you were talking about Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC, guaranteeing when you put on $250,000 in a bank, that much is covered if a bank ever fails. And, you know, we do that. We move our accounts around, for instance, at the Independent to make sure that there's not more than that in any one account. Is this going to change the game now, George? Because they're saying that for the Bank of New York as well. They're going to cover people's deposits above that 250. Is that 250 not going to be a real number anymore? I cannot speak for the FDIC, right? Uh, what I could say is, based on, on what I know, they cannot afford to do it for anybody, right? Because people haven't paid for it. Uh, I think, and, the, the re, and I was in several meetings over the weekend uh, where this stuff was discussed, uh, not necessarily with FDIC, but with other banking commissioners and the conference or state bank supervisors. Uh, the main reason they're doing this is, and, the, and, 
And the big difference from now to 2A is they're not going to make shareholders and investors whole. Those people are going to lose their money. So that's a big difference. Second, they expect that they're going to sell the bank in an auction. And they're going to generate enough money to be able to cover for the cost, right? So it's going to come up from the insurance fund. Because the bank is so big and has assets, they feel they're going to break even, if not actually make a little bit of money. Uh, there's no guarantee of that, right? If that doesn't happen, they already announced that if then their proceeds of auctioning the bank or breaking it up into little pieces and selling specific assets don't generate enough net proceeds, then they're going to issue a special assessment to the rest of the industry to make up for the difference. Gotcha. So this is a one, this is a quote unquote one time exception for those two, namely because not so much for, because investors are losing everything as they should because they took a risk, right? And they made decisions and they, they made the wrong decisions, right? Uh, but because of the impact it was going to have on the depositors, especially like in the case of uh, Silicon Valley Bank, there were so, so many large depositors that they would put them out of business if those deposits were to be lost. Now, you know, your first point was don't panic because you don't want people to be doing around the bank. Right. Everyone's obviously scared about that today. Joe Biden, the president, is going to make a, a statement because he wants to calm people. So it's true that Silicon Valley Bank was so different because it was mostly startups and tech and fintech. And yes. they didn't, most of them had more deposits over 250. But if I'm not mistaken, you know so much more about this than I do, George. It was a combination of factors that led to that bank's collapse, oh, right. including That's that interest rates went up so fast that in the past, interest rates go up slowly. So depositors don't all take their money out of banks to get more interest somewhere else, right? And now well, it that bank like, was actually paying high interest rates. Oh, they were. Okay. So that wasn't a factor there. No, interest rates was a factor, but for a different reason. This is a bank that grew real fast in the last six to eight years because of the fintechs and the, and the high-tech companies, right? And what they did is they took the money and invested it in U.S. bonds primarily. Other, other investments, but a lot of it were U.S. bonds. But they did that two, three years ago when the rates were lower. And, and the average yield in the portfolio was 1.79, which was a good yield back then when the prime rate was zero, right? Uh, but today, the prime rate is seven and three quarters. On Friday, the three-month uh, T-bill was 4.89. The, the one-year T-bill has been uh, going back and forth between five, five, I mean, 4.9 to 5.18. So in today's market, that year 1.79 is no longer good. If they were to hold those bonds into its maturity, they would have collected back all their money. They would have not mm -hmm. lost any money. But what happened was, because... They were having cash flow issues and 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 some real famous big time um, brokers firms were starting to recommend that people withdraw the money on thursday alone 42 billion dollars withdrawals were done in the bank. wow they're not a cash and yeah. when they try to sell their bonds so what they did is to make up to come out with cash they try to sell part of their portfolio because it was selling it early and the rates have gone up and their yield was so low they lost, they, they sold a $1.8 billion loss, which wow. only made the cash flow problems worse. So are there any then banks they, in Connecticut that have that issue of too much invested in treasury bonds? The good news on banks are so small that they cannot, they will never have that kind of exposure, right? Uh, I'll be able to answer that question more concrete later today. We are doing an analysis of that. We're not aware of it. Um, so your preliminary analysis is that, that we don't have any banks that, in trouble? No. 
not, not in Connecticut, not Connecticut charter, right? Uh, and primarily because our, our market is different, right? We don't have a lot of high techs, a lot of fintechs, right? We're not New York, we're not. And crypto California. was the problem with Sovereign, correct? Yes, crypto was big in New York, right? It's also big in, in, in California. In fact, one of the biggest companies that would have been in big trouble was the fifth largest crypto company in the nation that had almost 26% of their reserve at Savings Bank of uh, Silicon Bank of Silicon Valley Bank. Bank. Yep. Yeah. So yes, you... that's one of the reasons why I think that the Fed came in. I mean, FDIC in particular, to make deposits whole. Are you getting so a lot of inquiries? We don't have any, any those kind of deposit mix. I mean, uh, our deposit mix, like for instance, they had a very few true retail customers, meaning people like you and I as customers, right? Or, or, or like the bodega down the corner, or, or, the, or the sneakers shop down the corner, right? And the, their customer base was really big. I mean, Raku, you know, uh, I have a couple of names here. Uh, uh, Set Recruiter, all big, humongous companies that were all fintech companies at one time uh, because they did a lot of lending to those type of entities, which not, a lot of banks don't specialize in. And we don't have that in Fairfield County with the uh, hedge fund industry? No, the banks that, that are state charter, you know, don't. How about regional banks that are chartered somewhere else but do business here? For instance, I go to Key Bank or. Yeah, I don't regulate them. I, I, you know, that data can be accessible through the call reports, but they're much bigger, right? And 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 they also have a customer base that's much more diverse, right? They mm -hmm. don't have eighty percent of one particular industry as customers. That's the key there. It's concentration. The, the thing that we're learning from this, which is similar to what happened in 2A, that's the only thing that's in common, is concentration risk has not gone away. And as regulators, we need to do a better job in cracking down when you have an entity that has that kind of concentration. In fact, to, to be fair to my colleagues in California, they try to do that. And the bank, that bank and other banks went to Congress and tried to say that we're being too mean, too tough, and that we should be more lenient. Senator Tom Scott, took up that call for them just two days ago. Did you see that? His timing wasn't very good. George Perez is a state banking commissioner. So it's a big day for you, George, isn't it? I would imagine that your office is fielding nonstop inquiries from the public. You said you're putting together an assessment of our banks just to reassure people. I hear you very loud and clear telling people don't panic. We're not going to have bank failures here. You don't want people running on deposits. What's your day look like? What's your, what are some of the steps you guys are going to take? Well, besides a couple uh interviews like yours uh you're the first one thank you uh at one o'clock i'm going to meet with all the ceos in connecticut mm -hmm. not only state state charter but but you know the big the big uh national banks like the bank of americas and so forth now and that one i don't expect the ceo of bank of america to be in this meeting but the regional president uh where in the state charter ones all the presidents and their chief financial officers will be in the meeting jointly with the connecticut bankers association and part of that is to go over the announcement to make sure to hear anything that we hear out there uh, and to make sure that not, people are not panicking, right? Uh, and, you know, encourage people to, to uh, communicate with the customers, right? One of the biggest issues that happened in this instance was the communication between the bank and the customers was really, really bad and with the public. In fact, not only did the bond self was a fiasco for them, but then they tried to issue stocks. And because of the run of the bank and the lack of communication, that collapsed too. So that's when the Fed tried to come in and bail them out because they had enough cash. 
So the key here is communication, reassuring the public. Connecticut banks are much different than those two banks that we're talking about. It says our market is different. We, we don't have that. So you're meeting with CEOs, I assume that's by Zoom, George? Yes, uh, it's all going to be done by Zoom. And you're meeting with them just to get information from them and to spread the word about your concern about keeping communication lines open with, with customers. I hear you saying that your staff is just renewing its assessments of the state of the banks. Anything else going on today? Are you fielding a lot of calls from just everyday consumers? Not, to be honest with you, not one single call today. Really? Any consumer. Wow. Uh, not one. Uh, so that's good. I mean, that's that is good. It. And that's the way it should be. No Connecticut bank has been taken over, and there's no reason for it that I know of for mm-hmm. any Connecticut bank to be taken over by the feds or us or anybody else in the near future. And you, and you remember what it's like to work at the banks and be in those meetings when you're running a bank. So I can, yes. I can imagine that you'll know when you go on this call today what, what people need to hear. Yes, in fact, I, not only through merchants, but I, I actually worked at a bank that was taken over by the FDIC. Oh, really? That, that, yeah, First Constitution. Oh, yeah, yeah. Way, way back in the day, uh, the Western Bank ended up buying it. I want to say that was the uh, mid-90s, early to mid-90s. Yes. Yes, that was in the mid-90s. And I remember that, that they had done a lot of these um, co-loans where they took equity stakes in companies. Wasn't that one of their Correct. big mistakes? Correct. Yeah. What happens is when a bank deviates from the cookie cut, like, like the, what I call the cookie cutter approach, right? Mm-hmm. Mortgages, car loans, you know, home equities. And they start going and, and, and specialize in particular fields or really high concentrations. That's when you get in trouble, you know. Oh, that's when you tend to have issues. What do you remember from that incident when you were there at the when you were present at the takeover? Well, uh, at that time, I was I was an assistant vice president, which is the lowest level of, of management. Uh, I have very little to do with what caused the issue. But I mean, you, as an employee, I mean, you feel depressed, right? You're going to lose your job, or you could lose your job, right? In my case. The surviving entity who bought it offered me a, a job, which I didn't take because I didn't want to travel outside of New Haven. So I went with the competition. Uh, the other thing is, th- th- there's a lot of secondary market that gets impacted by this too, right? I mean, th- th- there are people like like United Way, right? The, those donations don't want to come from those banks, right? Uh, they're the laundry mines, right? And the grocery stores, their restaurants. So those employees used to go eat lunch and so forth. Right. So, so, so there's a lot of impact that happens beyond the depositors and and, and investors. Uh, so, I mean, it was not fun. I mean, as much. Well, uh, I'm glad we got you at the helm to make sure you. When people are going to have you. a repeat of that scenario, and can I wish you luck today dealing with the CEOs, helping to uh, reassure the public, and thanks so much for making time, George Perez, State Banking Commissioner. Tied for longest serving current state employee on the route to becoming longest serving bank <laughs> commissioner. State state, state, I mean, state commissioner, excuse me, not state employee at all. State commissioner. George, thanks so much for making time. We miss you in New Haven and we're glad things are going well up in Hartford. All right. Thank you, Paul. And have, have a good luck today in dealing with this. You're yeah, listening thank to love. Yep. You're listening to love Babs, love talk on WNHHFM uh, 103.5 live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. And I'm filling in for Babs Rolls Ivy, who's away at a um, conference this week, a writing conference. And I'm sitting in her chair, and I can't live up to how she does it, but I'll, I'll be doing my best. And we heard from George Perez there, who used to be the Board of Alders president in New Haven.
He had a long career here. He grew up here, and now he's a state banking commissioner. He uh, he is the tied for the longest-serving commissioner in government. He predated the Lamont administration, and he said he's on his way to becoming the longest-serving bank commissioner in a year. And this is, is going to be his moment of sunlight because for the last uh, three days, we've had two bank failures in in Connecticut. I mean, in, in the nation, not in Connecticut. We have Silicon Valley Bank in California and Sovereign Bank in New York. And so obviously there's a lot of concern today that other banks are going to have problems, have runs uh, from depositors. The attention's focusing on banks like First Republic that are similar to the banks that failed. As you heard George Perez say, Silicon Valley Bank really was focused on the tech industry, FinCon, which is financial, FinTech, which is financial tech. And they had a, a they made some, he thinks, some very unwise investment decisions in treasury bonds that didn't give them the cash they needed on hand to pay um, when they, uh, when, when there was the run on the bank. He's, he's confident that's not going to happen here. In New York, the bank was very tied in the crypto industry. So I hope George right. I trust George. I agree with him that it's a good idea not to, uh, not to panic or anything like that. I mean, you know, every headline. I was thinking about how in the context of social media, news travels faster. It's more of a danger. But now we're going to go and say hello to Nora Grace Flood of the New Haven Independent. Is here, has a word on the street. Good morning, Nora. It's nice to see you. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Good. Boy, you're in loud and clear. Good, good job. Oh. Good to know. Yeah, I did just get an upgrade for my iPhone. So. You really did? You just got an upgrade? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got to look into that because I never sound this good when I'm out on the street doing word on the street. So what's the word on the street, Nora? Who you got? Yeah, so I'm at the Bottle Redemption Centers of America. I Ooh, think that's the name of this Great site, choice. Um, right off the Boston Post Road. And I've got Suki here to talk to us. Um, so I'm going to turn the camera around and ask Suki, what's the word on the street? Um, the word on the street today is injustice. Mm. We're talking about injustice for the homeless, the homeless in New Haven, All and right. what the city doing to get rid of us. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, could we start with what we're doing here today? Um, we are. We're um, we're turning in bottles. I go around New Haven every day, collect bottles, um, bring them in, help support. You know, get heat and food and stuff for me and my husband. Um, and that's what we were doing this morning. It's kind of a look into our life. <laughs> yeah. And is this typically how you spend your morning? This is. This is how I spend my morning and usually my afternoons, too. <laughs> yeah. And tell me a little bit more about that. I know Suki has, um, she calls it her loop. <laughs> yeah, my loop. I do it every day. Um, I Basically, I go all around New Haven. Um, and there are lots of businesses. You know, people get to know you. They see you. They save bottles for you. They'll give them to you when you come by. And it's just, you know. Yeah. How much time do you typically spend collecting bottles um, on a given day? I, I'm there more than I am anywhere else. I, I think <laughs> I probably spend an average of six hours a day you know, walking at least doing this. So. What area do you cover? Um, I, I cover almost all of New Haven from um, over here on the boulevard clear down to like the green. So wow. I, I walk everywhere, <laughs> all over Yale. <laughs> Good workout. <laughs> um, and how much, how many bottles? Can we kind of quantify how many bottles you deposited today? I think it's okay. impressive. Um, um, well, we would have to look at the tickets, but I mean, if yeah. I was a bottle, you'd think twenty a dollar today. We did just under twenty dollars for this morning, and that was just, you know, for last night. So I haven't right. Um, and yeah, can we expand on that idea of injustice? Um, it's a big day. It is. It's a big day for Tent City in New Haven. Um, the city has uh, told us we had to do all kinds of things today. Um, we keep doing them, and then all of a sudden they put a seventy-two hour notice, and today they're coming to kick us out so we'll see what what happens if we had somewhere else to go they're 
obviously we wouldn't live in two cities. <laughs> right. And the background here is that there's an encampment right off El Grasso Boulevard um, where about 20 um, people without stable housing have been staying for around three years. A week ago, um, the city put notices on all of the tents saying that if uh, the residents did not meet certain standards of, I think, quote, clean living, yeah. um, they were going to shut down the encampment. Uh, Suki was one of the big players in actually cleaning up the encampment. Um, she spent six hours a day for about a week um, just clearing debris out of the site. Um, and the city told everyone that they could stay. We wrote an article about the fact that 10 cities seemed here to stay. And was it yesterday? Yeah, just just um, two days ago, they they came back. Um, I was actually out when they came and put the notices on the tents. This kind of blindsided us, you know. But um, also, yeah. you know, certain city people involved, you know, had approached me separately and are trying to get, you know, some of us to leave. You know, yeah. That's right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, can you say more about that? How has the city approached you? What have um, they offered? Well, they uh, right after that, um, I guess the publicity was bad. Then no mm. one wants that. So they approached me and my husband and offered to buy us bus tickets out of state. If we wanted to leave, but we had to leave right now. Mm. You know, and we were supposed to give our answer by today, but today's yeah. when it's all going down. So yeah. So can PM, you, you know, if you want to show their support for homeless in New Haven, come down to El Grasso Boulevard. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, could you talk a little bit about what's going through your mind? How do you make a decision here? You technically have the option to, you're originally from Georgia. Right? I am, I'm originally from Georgia. Um, I came here because my husband's father is ill and his family is here. And um, we've kind of made a home here and we've made, made lots of relationships with people here. And uh, and we really do try, you know, like um, the one thing I like about what I do is it's good for everyone, it's good for the environment, it's good for the city of New Haven. And I just wish that they could see that, you know? Yeah. So even though we might not be valued citizens in the eyes of the city, you know, we're, we're still people and we still care about our city. Yeah. And so your plan is to try to stay at the encampment? Yeah, stand in our ground. So whether we, we all go down together or not, we're, we're going to be there. Yeah. So. Um, and do you think, is that primarily out of um, necessity in terms of thinking about the future you really want to stay at Tent City that's the best case scenario or is it about well, the community that you've built in really yeah and um and I've known other people that have stayed on the streets and it's, and it's much much scarier scenario when you're sleeping just anywhere and you know and we really are a community yeah and we care about each other yeah um what do you think you'll do if the encampment is closed down today I have no idea <laughs> I have no clue so I guess we'll just we'll, we'll start you know, all I can do is remain positive and pray for the best. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to let Paul weigh in here, too. Paul, do you have any questions you'd like to well, ask? So I'm sorry that you, you don't know where you're going to be sleeping tonight, Suki. I hope you find a place. Have, has the city offered yeah. you beds in any facilities or their shelter, no, supportive no, housing? They, they, they offered. They say that they were going to send people to help us in different workers and things. But they, they always say that and then it never comes through. Um, so... Uh, they, they really have very little interest in what happens to any of us. They just don't want it to look bad mm. on them. <laughs> w would you want to be living, let's say, in a transitional shelter or in a supportive housing environment? Um, I mean, possibly. I, I mean, that, that could be. A lot of those places, though, um, it's hard to stay together, especially um, if you're, you, know, you have a significant other or situation. And, um, and that's the one thing we have is we just have each other. Mm. Yeah. How did you and your husband meet? 
so we were dairy farmers <laughs> so yeah we just met on a farm in georgia and fell in love and this is what it was right so. um and can you tell our audience what your husband does for work as well um, my husband is a handyman he um works at the new tmt smoke shop down there on congress um he remodeled that whole building it's beautiful and he does work um all over the city for anybody and everybody we do a little bit of everything <laughs> so yeah um and what would you, how would you like to see the city um, treat Tent City? I just, I just wish they'd realize it would be, and we just want somewhere safe to be and, and the same respect and rights that other people have, you know, and uh, it shouldn't be that we're wondering, you know, from day to day, you know, whether we're just going to have somewhere to lay our head and, and not freeze to death. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and what are your plans for the rest of the day? So how do you prepare for the city's? Um, I'm going to be home. there. There's people there now. Um, everybody, you know, they, they've tried to keep the site clean, but it doesn't matter really what we do. Um, they've already made their decisions. They decided to push us out there. And push yeah. Um, and you were saying a lot of people there you think are in denial that yeah. this is going to happen. Yeah, a lot of people are. Um, but, you know, yeah. what we can do is over that. Yeah. Um, and could you talk a little... I'm. I think our audience would like to hear more about you. Yeah. <laughs> um, could you tell us a little bit about your history as a farmer? Um, uh, so, I mean, I just, I, I kind of, I was new to dairy farming. I uh, only uh, worked there for a very short time, but I've, uh, I've had the opportunities in life to, to do several things, you know, so it's just um, looking forward to whatever the next Yeah. And you were saying, so you've been at Tent City since July mm -hmm. of last year. Yeah. Um, and had you experienced homelessness before that point ever? Um, no, I had never actually been homeless. It was totally something we had never thought, you know, until COVID, we were always fun. Mm, yeah. How did this change your worldview to experience not having stable housing for this period of time? It just makes you appreciate what you do have. You know, it may not be much, but we appreciate it. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Paul, final question. I just want to wish you well, Suki. I hope that I hope things work out for you. And thanks so much for chatting with me and Nora today. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Okay. Thank you, Back Nora. All right. Well, that was, uh, so I guess what we're hearing from Nora Grace Flood on the ground is that they're going to dismantle Tent City today by the boulevard. That's by the West River. That encampment has been a lot of robust public discussion about where the homeless should live at what point does it infringe on other people's rights and their own safety or what rights should homeless people have and it's been a tough decision for the city they i guess what i'm hearing now from nora and suki is that they're gonna pull the plug and have people move so it's stay tuned to the new haven independent because i'm positive that nora grace flood is going to have that story we're gonna take a little break here so harry can tee us up for the 10 o'clock hour this is paul bass i'm filling in for Babs Rolls Ivy on Love Babs Love Talk. When we come back, we're going to talk a little more about climate tech and what happened banks, but more about a new place in New Haven that's hatching companies that are seeking to combat climate change. A place called Climate Haven with Ryan Diggs, who's the director. And then we're going to pivot to shape note singing because there's an event tomorrow night about that. And the chair of the Department of Music at Yale, Ian Quinn, is going to help us out. So we've got a lot to talk about and explore a lot of words worlds and the uh, other and the order so stick with us at WNHH FM let me see what we're gonna queue up here
Hi, this is Babs Rawls-Ivy from New Haven, Connecticut, and you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming live at newhavenindependent.org. While COVID may not stop a baby's heart, isn't a child with a rising fever, cough, and chills enough to make your heart skip a beat? Children are 19% of reported COVID cases with higher rates in Hispanic and black children. Vaccinated six months to five-year-olds are 80% less likely to get COVID, which means 80% healthier New Haven one-year-olds and 100% happier New Haven parents. To learn more, visit nhvvax.org.
Hi, this is Bella, and you are listening. W N H H H L L P one one O O three point five five F F M New Haven New Haven streaming streaming live live at Welcome back to WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, your host at Dateline New Haven, inviting you to look behind the headlines and the stories that make our community tick. I'd like to introduce you to someone who you're going to be seeing a lot more of in New Haven at a new institution that's up to some exciting work building the economy of New Haven's future. Say good morning to Ryan Diggs. He's the founding director of Climate Haven. I hope I say this right. An incubator for climate-oriented tech companies. That are starting up at 770 Chapel. Did I get it right, Ryan? All right, let me uh, let me get you better volume there. So thanks for coming in. So Climate Haven is 770 Chapel. That's between Orange and State. It was City Hall once in a blue once a long time ago. Temporarily served as City Hall for a few years when our re- City Hall was being rebuilt in the early 90s. It's been a lot of other things. C Click Fix was there, and now you're setting up shop there. And uh, how many how many floors do you have there? Uh, so we're starting out initially with about 10,000 square feet, which, which is that uh, C-Click fix space they used to occupy. Um, our goal will be to hopefully expand Climate Haven over the next couple of years so that we occupy at least a couple floors in 770 Chapel Street. And I'm going to ask you, Ryan, to get a little closer to the mic so you're almost touching. But not sure, quite. yeah. So what you're doing is you're helping companies. You want to have a bunch of companies start there that looking address the challenges faced by climate change, Correct. That's exactly right. So at its core, Climate Haven is a community of climate tech entrepreneurs and all the people that passionately support them. I think if you want to take one step back and, 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 and start to ask why climate tech entrepreneurship is so important and why it's so, um, so necessary to uh, create these types of communities, you have to look at where we are right now with climate change. Um, it is an important issue, uh, which requires uh, urgent action. And when you think about what we have to do to address it, which is really dramatically reduce our carbon emissions, we simply don't have all the tools, the innovations, the inventions that we need today to do that. And so entrepreneurship at its core is this really essential part of making sure that we have all the tools, all the innovations, all the inventions that we need in order to get us, humanity, this planet, to reduce our carbon emissions as much as we possibly can. An idea, obviously, of an incubator is that you want 
people who have an idea for whether it's a new form of carbon capture or you know turning hydrogen into water into power that they're around other people who are also working on projects so they can share ideas they can be inspired by ideas they can join together to afford certain costs together and overhead and the big part obviously is you're in a city where a lot of research is being done at yale and since the levin administration at yale in the early 90s yale has Try to mimic Route 128, which you're very familiar with in, in Massachusetts and Palo Alto, with commercializing the research. I mean, that's been the boom with Science Park. It's been the boom with 100 and 101 College Street. It's filling up even before it's done, which is that research coming out at Yale can help found companies that then become job creators in our community and help and, and address those climate challenges. Is that kind of the idea here? We're hoping to have some of those Yale spinoffs there. Exactly. And there's, there's, there's two important things in what you just said, and, and they're kind of separate ideas embedded in, in your description that are worth mentioning. So the first is the value in putting entrepreneurs around each other. Uh, climate tech as kind of a sector of uh, you know, venture capital, early stage company building is hard. It's, it's really hard. Often you're, you're, you're building physical things, not just an app, but you're, you're, you're creating some sort of physical construct that's going to support decarbonization. Or uh, more often these days, you're applying chemistry or biology to, to think about exactly how we can decarbonize. That's just hard work. It also happens to be in sectors of the economy where the incumbents are like supremely embedded in our daily lives, you know, the energy companies. It's it's hard to overthrow them. And, and so this notion of climate tech entrepreneurship is one which is tough. Climate Haven isn't trying to make it easy, but what we're trying to do is make it less hard. And one of the ways that you do that is by putting these entrepreneurs around other like-minded people who are doing different things. The companies will be taking different approaches to decarbonization and to scaling climate technologies, but they're doing equally challenging things. And so bringing those people together, you know, allows them to lean on one another. And then you create a density of companies that allow others, the, the, you know, the, the, those passionate people that support them, the stakeholders in the community, uh, you know, folks that'll help them manufacture their products, investors, corporate partners. It allows them to all kind of benefit from that density of startups that are working together. I would assume, tell me if this is correct, that you know you have several stages of funding when you have a company. You get startup capital, whether it's a loan from Community Innovations or something, the state quasi-public funding agency. And then when you develop, you need other funders, and you're going to have an ecosystem. You're going to have people who meet each other, who know each other, who confer each other. You're going to be able to tell people about other people. People will trust you That's right. as a gatekeeper. You already have done this in Massachusetts. So you're a gatekeeper, sort of, hey, I got somebody you might want to know about. And there's still dollars looking for that. Are there any companies yet? In Climate Haven or about to come, are there any? Well, so we haven't. We're just about to embark upon the process of recruiting companies. Um, we 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 uh, announced our board of directors, uh, announced my appointment uh, last week, and and uh, we're starting to get work uh, on improving the physical space. And so we we em we're embarking upon that process now. And you know, one of the really great things about being here in New Haven is that we do get to tap into that very deep well of intellectual brilliance that is at Yale and, and all the research, really, the really intensive research that's being done. And, and that, I, I think, gets me to that, uh, you know, to my, what I think is really the second important point there beyond just bringing the entrepreneurs together. It's, 
it's it's what type of entrepreneurs are you bringing together and you know we're at a point where we do have a number of technologies innovations that are going to help us decarbonize a good portion of the way uh you know solar and wind are examples of two technologies that have have really kind of been de-risked over the last uh, number of years people accept them as just kind of working technologies that will help us as a species as a planet reduce our carbon emissions that's great but there's going to be some really intensive research that's going to need to be done you, you identified two technologies earlier around carbon capture uh in instances where we can't um we're still emitting some carbon into the air how do we capture it and and then create something valuable out of carbon did you read yesterday in the times about new york city the first building they think it's gonna be more where they they get it the from the burner and then they mix it in to make cement yeah at a cement factory exactly that's a perfect example of, of taking something that um you know really has just been this awful externality carbon um and 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 capturing it and and creating value out of it um and hydrogen is another example you mentioned earlier about how we're, we really need to imagine how uh we can use hydrogen which is just such a a, a dense energy source uh to kind of you know, clean up some of the dirtier industrial decarbonization that we tackle right now using natural gas or, or fo other fossil fuels. And so you think of a place like Yale, uh, where there's incredible research, you know, great minds, and more and more of the university is starting to kind of, you know, uh, point their, their research, point their, their uh, you know, their efforts towards climate. And we want to be a place where, you know, those entrepreneurs who have taken an, uh, you know, some sort of breakthrough research and I identified and recognized that that research could actually become a, a technology, which could become the, the, the bedrock of, of a company, a scalable company. Um, we want to be a home for them. And we want to be a place where they can go in New Haven, uh, you, know, we, we, you know, close to campus, in, but in the city, and build their company here. We're talking to Ryan Diggs, founding director of Climate Haven, 770 Chapel Street, across from Elm City Market. It's going to be devoted purely to green tech, a startup incubator. You know, I'm getting all these vibes when you're talking about it. I remember people talking when we started Science Park in 1982. It was the same kind of feel, the same kind of idea of what can grow from there in the ecosystem. And it took some stops and starts, but it happened. And they filled up, and uh, now we've got a whole downtown sector in general with tech and a lot of biotech. Um, as I said, 101 Chapel, 100. I mean, 101 College, 100 College, and we're probably going to get a new one now in the ninth square. And it's just thinking about climate tech. Would you say there's a gold rush on among investors, venture capitalists worldwide, to find and fund some of these startups, given that you know the EU and all sorts of organizations and national governments are requiring and city governments are requiring greater energy efficiency and less carbon? 100%. And it's, is there a way to quantify that, Ryan? Like the number of dollars the market is, or how many? Well, you could you could you could you could quantify it simply in the the um, start by quantifying it in terms of the value of the Inflation Reduction Act. Right. You know, three hundred and sixty-nine billion dollars of incentives, which the market should then leverage ten times over. In, in terms of the, the amount of investments that will be injected into climate and clean technology. So have you been getting bug-eyed at like 11 at night trying to read all that on your computer or your phone, all the fine print in the, the Inflation Reduction Act to see what you guys are going to be able to go after? Or? Well, the really fun part about the Inflation Reduction Act is that it supports almost 
all clean technologies and it supports decarbonization. It really in, is an environmental bill. It is. Yeah. It is an incredible bill. And if I think back around uh, about my own career and I think back about, uh, you know, some of the different uh, companies I've worked in in the clean tech space, just, you know, a matter of kind of five, you know, seven years ago, the atmosphere right now in terms of uh, the general will that we as a, as a, as a, as a kind of, a, you know, as a country have to, to accept climate change and kind of meet that challenge head on, um, the financial interest to see that challenge as an enormous economic opportunity. Um, and the, the interest, I think, just among folks who want to, want to invest their time. They want to be part of this because, you know, they see working in climate technology as something that not only could bring prosperity to them and their communities, but is also going to make the planet a little better place for their kids. I think it's kind of an empowering way to look, a very positive way to look at the challenge of climate change. People can feel despair, you know, the, the planet's going to, you know, melt, or, you know, it's going to wipe us out or, you know, the cities are going to disappear. And then when you start talking and looking at real examples of successful technology that have reduced our carbon footprint, that have saved those only that, that you feel you could do something about it. And it's a game changer psychologically as, as a nation, as a world. I think when we think about we can do something about a problem rather than we have to just accept that we're going to be victims of a problem. You know? It's, you know, climate change is, a, it's, it's a big problem. And to me, um, it's a moral imperative that we do something about it. I also happen to think that it is a moral imperative that unites economic opportunity uh, and, and, and gives us the opportunity to build something great. I never it, understood why the larger fossil fuel companies didn't invest earlier. Their own research was telling them about climate change before everybody else understood it. We found that like from ExxonMobil. And you look at Iverdrola, right, the company that's the parent company of UI, United Illuminating. They've gone so heavily into investments in wind power, both in Spain, they're even trying to do something here in Bridgeport. And so many other companies have, it seems to me, who could have been best positioned to make the money that's going to be made on green tech. It seemed they were kind of slower to the dance, perhaps because they're so beholden to short-term shareholder returns. Do you have any thoughts on that question? Obviously, this, you know, it's a huge opportunity for entrepreneurs, and there always will be, because like IBM could do certain things with tech over the years, but you needed Microsoft, you needed Google, you needed, you know. Mm. Any thoughts on why it didn't seem to be part of the corporate model, with, except for exceptions like Iverdrola? It's, you know, it's tough to kill the golden goose. I can't, I can't blame anybody for wanting to hold on to the golden goose. <clears throat> I think if you look at uh, you know, some of the investments energy companies have made, you're likely to see the European-based companies uh, be more aggressive in terms of the investments <laughs> they made. Is that because their That's, governments regulate more? Or? I think part of it has to do because of the governments. I think in the case of Vibradola, I mean, you're looking at a company that's invested heavily in offshore wind, yeah. and Europe just advanced faster in terms of offshore wind development. They invested more in it. They got better at the technology, uh, and you now have the largest offshore wind farms in the world based in Europe. Uh, we're lucky now that those companies uh, see New England as a place where offshore wind uh, yeah. can develop quickly, and so they're now making investments here. We see more of the European companies wanting to make investments in uh, offshore wind in New England than we see the U.S. companies, uh, you know, that are primarily based in Texas or, <clears throat> you know, out west, wanting to make those same investments. Well, it's been some. It's, it's, been some it's a tough challenge. They'll, they, you know, they 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 want to be part of an energy transition, but they they want to respect uh, and protect their incumbency. 
So, Ryan, you talked about knowing firsthand. You came from a place called Greentown Labs, where you've been working in green tech. Tell us about some of the companies you've worked, specifically companies you've worked with in the past to help take from the seed of an idea to fruition. Yeah. <clears throat> Greentown's a great place. Uh, it is a climate tech incubator based in the Boston area. Uh, it helps um, uh, at any given time uh, in, summer, in, in Somerville, which is uh, where it is just outside of Boston. You probably have about 50 to 100 startup companies that are in the space being wow. incubated. Um, those companies very intentionally work in a, a variety of kind of climate sectors. So you may have a company that is coming up with a, a, a unique uh, uh, process to decarbonize cement, which is very carbon intensive, uh, working next to a company uh, that is creating uh, uh, you know, a, a new way to think about uh, EV charging. Uh, working right next to uh, another company uh, that's uh, you know working on battery storage, uh, creating kind of a new chemistry uh, for uh, you know long duration energy storage. Can you and, think of a day was your favorite day on the job there that you said this is why I do it? This is the power of what we're up to. Uh, you know, for me, there's there's really two things that I think are um, that are really exciting about the work. So, number one is when you see projects actually get out of the lab and and go into the ground. Uh, pri prior to Greentown, I, I worked at a wonderful organization called SunWealth where we were uh, primarily building commercial solar projects. And it was always so meaningful to see those projects actually built and to see those, uh, those projects completed and, and, and you know, turn them on, generating clean electricity. That's a, that's a really marvelous thing. That's what's cool about climate tech in general. It's, it's so cerebral because we're, we're building so much of climate tech is going to be building physical infrastructure. Mm -hmm. which is absolutely fantastic. Um, the second thing that, that uh, I experienced a lot at Greentown was just when uh, you know, we would have new folks come in working, uh, joining uh, either our team or joining the teams of uh, the climate tech uh, startups that are there. And you know, more often than not, these folks are on the younger side. And there was just a passion, like a genuine interest in taking their skills, uh, all their intellectual curiosity, and their energy and just applying it to this problem, applying it to, to climate change. And for all the, 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 the doomsday talk about, you know, what could happen if we don't address this problem, there is this inherent optimism amongst the people that are working in climate change that, yeah, we're going to address it. We're going to tackle it head on. It's an enormous economic opportunity. It's going to require decades, maybe for some people, their life's work. But you know what? The result will be a regenerative economy that hopefully can displace this extractive economy that we've built over the last 250 years and, and build great prosperity. And I think that that sense of optimism that you see in the people that are attracted to a place like Greentown that come to work in climate tech companies like it's infectious. So the formation story, as I heard it, was that all these people want to form a climate tech in New Haven, a, a, an incubator. People like Caroline Smith, Ben Berkowitz, and Click Fix, Josh Cabral, who's Yale University's point person in, in helping tech companies start in New Haven with Yale Research. They all visited Greentown for a tour. They said, we want to do something like what's happening in Greentown. You gave them the tour. I did, yeah. And they said, oh, this guy kind of knows what he's doing. Maybe we can get him <laughs> come down to New Haven. Yeah. And they somehow got you to come down how did that happen is that an accurate story uh it it, it, it it's uh it's pretty close it's pretty close there was a, a wonderful group of folks from yale 
uh, that came up to Greentown. I, I did give them a tour uh, and uh, hit it off uh, with a lot of them. Um, just found them to be an amazing group, genuine folks, really smart, uh, really committed to building this. Uh, and uh, it's it's an exciting opportunity. I think in uh, you know when you think about uh, you know when you think about climate tech, for me it's it's not a matter of you know oh support a couple of companies you know that are then going to take some technology maybe some sort of digital technology and just you know kind of infinitely scale it globally. It's a matter of you know building you know kind of strong ecosystems that are going to have the might to to decarbonize all of this infrastructure. And, and that requires, you know, it requires, a, a, you know, a strong community in Boston. Greentown requires a strong community in New York. It requires taking advantage of the abundance of resources that are in a place like New Haven and making a great climate tech community here. Now, and, you're, getting, you're getting started funding from Connecticut Innovations, correct? Uh, so Connecticut Innovations has a wonderful new fund, Climate, climate Tech, tech Fund, fund. Uh, which will support uh, uh, a number of clean tech companies and invest in them. Oh, I see. So they'll invest in the companies you bring here. Exactly. Are you getting any money? Like, how is your funding starting? Is it Yale who gave you money to start up? Yeah. So uh, the the university's been been wonderful in their support, and and you know we're hoping to announce some specifics soon. Uh, you know, other local foundations have been fantastic. Well, I mean, you uh, came, and you opened, so there must be some money. Uh, sure. Yes. Yeah. No. We're 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 getting grant funding uh, as well as some funding, some foundations that we're finalizing, and and some private funding as well. And um, you know, any, any EPA, federal EPA. Uh, so, uh, actually, one of the the, the first uh, first pieces of funding that we did get uh, was from the Department of Energy. Uh, they have a wonderful grant program uh, that supports the the kind of development of incubator communities uh, like ours. Um, so it was really nice to see that funding come in from the DOE, and uh, they've been uh, Department of Energy actually uh, has been an incredible force uh, for um, uh, clean energy development across the U.S. So before I let you go, tell me what a typical day is going to be like at Climate Haven in five years at 77 Chapel. What's going to be happening there and how are you going to spend your day? Uh, it's a great question. My hope is that in five years from now, we have an incredibly uh, uh, diverse, passionate group of entrepreneurs, uh, you know, potentially somewhere between 30 to 40 companies uh, that we are working with at any given time. Uh, that are doing incredibly intensive work on climate change. Uh, they could be highly technical uh, companies that, uh, you know, like we talked about earlier, uh, could be developing a novel technology to capture carbon, uh, or it could be companies that are thinking more along the lines of creating digital platforms uh, that allow uh, folks to transact uh, kind of distributed energy uh, on a more efficient basis. Um, and. And, you know, within that community uh, of entrepreneurs, you, my hope is that there's a great, robust group of people around them, investors. Well, we've seen it happen before in New Haven. Yeah. And we're going to see it happen again. <laughs> Climate tech is going to make the world a better place. And in the process, it's going to make New Haven a better place. That's my hope. So, Ryan Diggs, welcome to New Haven. You started last week. Is that when you started? Uh, yeah, we've, uh, we're, we're, I, I have started up and uh, we've got our board going and uh, we've got a lot of work to do this spring and summer. Well, welcome to New Haven. And we're going to cheer you on at every step. Awesome. Climate Haven 770 Chapel. What's the website? Uh, climatehaven.tech. Easy. All you right. Got it. And why don't you hold on tight, folks? You're listening to Love Babs, Love Talk. Paul Bass filling in for Babs Rolls Ivy. We're going to come back on the rebound and we're going to be talking to Ian Quinn, the chair of the Department of Music at Yale, about Yale New Haven regular singing, a sacred harp, shape note singing phenomenon that 
I think we're all going to want to know about. Sit tight. We're going to hear the Afro-Semitic experience performing. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. And we're going to be right back at you on WNHH 103.5 FM. Hi, this is Babs Rawls-Ivy from New Haven, Connecticut, and you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming live at newhavenindependent.org. Dateline New Haven, 103.5M, live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. This is Paul Bass filling in for the great Babs Rawls Ivy. I got something fun to tell you about. It happens pretty regularly in New Haven, but not enough people know about it. It's called the Yale New Haven Regular Singing. It's a weekly shape note singing group, which is a kind of singing we're going to learn all about today from the man who's helped put it together. Ian Quinn is a professor of music and the chair of the Department of Music at Yale University who helps putting these events together, including the one taking place Tuesday night. Ian Quinn, thank you so much for coming on Dateline New Haven. Paul, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to meet you. Same here. You know, you look so familiar. I don't know why. Have we run into each other? I can't tell. Anyway. possible. All right. So tomorrow night at 469 College Street, room 106, that's Beckle Hall, right? Is that what it's called? Steckle Hall. Steckle Hall. Okay. And that's like at the corner of... um, of College and Wall. It's right across right. College Street from Sprague Hall. And that, and then anyone can go to this, right? Where you want to do shape notes singing? That's right. This is open to all comers. And it's not a concert, uh, right? It's people come and sing, right? That's right. It is uh, it is a practice rather than a rehearsal. That is, we get together, we sing, we sing each song once, and then we don't sing it again that day. Really? Um, yeah. It's great. We just do it for the love of it. And uh, nobody needs to audition. Nobody needs to be good at singing to come and sing with us uh, there's a long argument about what it means to be good at singing right like do you think bob dylan's good at singing uh he's a, he would be a great shape note singer yeah <laughs> my wife and i've been arguing about this for 40 years i would argue he's a very good singer but uh, <laughs> I would agree. but that's a different subject for another day um so these events that take place so you, how many people show up to come sing with you guys well, uh, you know, the pandemic had a, a devastating yeah. effect on our community because uh, singing in general is, is one of the most efficient ways of spreading an aerosol has disease. Um, and especially shape note singing, which uh, we do usually in a room with chairs facing the center of the room uh, because there's no audience. We're singing only for each other. So we're essentially aerosolizing right at each other. <laughs> Uh, so in the days before the pandemic, uh, we met every Tuesday uh, weekly and had about 20 people there. Uh, we're at about 12 right now. We're meeting uh, on uh, alternate Tuesdays, uh, basically, for now. And do you have to do anything different because of COVID? Uh, we wear masks in our singing. Is, is it hard to sing with a mask? It is very hard to sing with a mask, uh, but it is the practice that our community has deemed to be 
And it's better than Except not singing. We take, a, we take a break in the middle, uh, and usually somebody's brought some baked goods, and then we take off our masks and uh, have a good chat. Now it's while been, we're singing. It's been a long time since I actually attended a Shape Note session. Is it Wesleyan with a guy named Neely Bruce? Does that ring a bell to you? I know Neely well. He's still up yeah, at Wesleyan. It was very good. And so let's tell people what Shape Note singing and Sacred Harp singing. So uh, Shape Note singing, you, you mentioned it's uh, sometimes synonym, Sacred Harp singing. That is named after uh, a book, which I'm holding up to my camera here, The Sacred Harp. Uh, the reason we call it shape note singing uh, is if I just open it up to a random page and hold that up to the camera, you can see that the notes on the page there are printed in different shapes. And those shapes correspond to the syllables fa, so, la, and mi, which you might recognize from do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. Um, and they help people kind of learn to sight read without ever really learning music notation. It's like a set of training wheels for music notation. Can you put it back up for a second? Sure. It's going to be a different page now because I was just at a random page. So like, in other words, I see one, like the six stanzas in there. I see the G note, three quarter notes, and then something that's shaped differently from usually seeing notes being shaped. Is it a mix of notes the way they're usually drawn and not? Like why someone who doesn't know music, how would they have the corresponding cue from someone who would know that as a G note? So uh, w the shape note system allows you to look at a page like this. I'm just going to keep holding it up for a minute. And you can see that the, the notes come in four shapes. There's the round shape that is the usual normal note shape. And that means that that note is going to be called sol when we sing it. Uh, there's also a triangle shape, which we call fa, and a rectangle shape, which we call la, and a diamond shape we call mi, because diamonds are for me, we like to say. <laughs> and those help us, as we're sight reading, a singer doesn't really need to look at the clef and the key signature and the staff and the bar line and everything. They can just look at those shapes and the shapes will tell them what note to sing. And there's a kind of automatic process that helps people learn to read this music very easily. And that's that is, why the culture of shape note music is to be open to all comers. Especially that is so cool. And, and is it operate on two systems? Do those notes still appear where the notes would be for someone who wants to play it on an instrument yeah, or sing it? That's right. So if you already know music notation, it's actually a little bit more confusing because you have to add something on top of it. If you don't know music notation, you kind of have an advantage. And I've noticed now that when people lead group singing, at least in Jewish settings now, there's this whole tradition of um, when they're trying to teach you a melody for group singing of without written music is you put your hand up where each note would go. Is that at all analogous to this? Did that grow out of that? Is that a more recent? They're both, uh, they're similar systems. Uh, there was a, a famous a Hungarian composer and pedagogue by the name of uh, Zoltan Kodai, who was a big popularizer of uh, people singing Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Ti to help learn to sight read. But he also encouraged people to have uh, hand signs that correspond to that, that moved up and down. Um, so those are two kind of musical practices that tend to travel together. And how do you deal with major and minor keys? How do major and minor keys figure into this? Uh, the major scale starts on the note fa. Fa, sol, la, fa, sol, la, mi, fa. The minor scale starts on la. La, mi, fa, sol, la, fa, sol, la. Okay. And then harmony is a big part, if I remember correctly. How do you get harmony working when you bring 12 or 20 people into the room and some of them haven't seen the song before you have them do different parts is like a yeah, round so the music is always in parts it's in uh usually four parts occasionally three parts 
Um, the, the melody is always in the tenor part. Uh, this is kind of a holdover from 500 years ago in European music. Um, so newcomers are often encouraged to sit in the tenor part so they can sing along with the melody. Uh, but uh, women with a low voice tend to gravitate to the alto part, which is a part all of its own. Men with a low voice tend to gravitate to the bass part. Um, and people just learn their part by singing next to people around them who have known the part or people are sight reading. And it all just comes together. We don't worry about it too much, but we don't practice. That's the point. So Am the I right that like, harmony is central to this? Part of what gives yes. it the magic? And is that part of what gives music magic? And we think, well, why do we have music, right? You're a music professor. Why do we have music? What are all those music playing in societies and helping us feel more human, connect to each other, understand our existence and explore our existence and experience it in ways that are different from the rational? Is harmony key to that in connecting us and taking us to a different level? Harmony is absolutely key to that. One of the, I think, of the many things that are wonderful about music, uh, one of the things you said is the one that's that's so important to me, is that it helps us connect to one another. And it does that even when we're just listening to music, if we're dancing in a club, our bodies are synchronized as we move together. Harmony is a way of just doing that in a different way, at a much higher level of vibration, uh, by having all of us tuned into each other and listening to the different voices that come together. It's a way to take us out of ourselves, to take us out of our bodies, and to put us into this wonderful musical space that harmony helps us get to. And also give us courage sometimes. I think of Sweet Honey in the Rock when they talked about the role that harmony singing played in the civil rights movement. And anyway, yeah. let's let's take a, let's take an example. You gave us some examples to play on the air. Harry Jarosz is gonna queue up Christian Soldier. Tell us about this. Is this your group? Christian Soldier, performed by Yale New Haven Regular Singing. Like me, you might not know what that was. Like, I didn't know until a day ago. It's a group that meets every other Tuesday. Everybody can go. Where you learn how to sing together in what's called Sacred Harp Shape Note Singing. We're talking about that on Dateline New Haven with Ian Quinn, who helps put that together. He's the Department of Music Chair at Yale University. Ian, is there some kind of specific genre we can use to describe sacred note music? I mean, it's not gospel music. It's not blues music, right? Is there any kind of genre that fits more with it? Uh, some people would call it gospel. Um, it is certainly, it flows out of a tradition of hymn singing um, that really came to be in the Second Great Awakening, uh, which was a, a cultural phenomenon that spanned 
white communities, black communities, indigenous communities that would come together at camp meetings and exchange musical practices. And that, uh, that ferment, that musical ferment is what is at the heart of shape note music. It's also what's at the, the heart of Southern gospel and to a certain extent, black gospel as well. Tell us about your own history with it. When did you start getting involved in shape note music, sacred harp singing? Well, my mother told me about it uh, when I was when I was very small, uh, and she'd been told about it by a, a folklore teacher of hers uh, uh, a while back. And I never really thought anything about it until one year I was on sabbatical at Stanford, and there was a, a singing up in Berkeley. Uh, and so I took the, the two-hour drive from Stanford up to Berkeley, and I just two my hours? jaw dropped the whole time. A lot of traffic on uh, <laughs> Wednesday nights. Um, my jaw dropped at the idea that there were all these people in the room who didn't consider themselves singing singers who had never had to audition, who had the opportunity to sing music in parts, to sing in harmony, and to stand up in front of a group and lead a song with no training was just, and that's still the most beautiful musical moment of my life. How long ago was that, Ian? That was in 2008. To me, that's the way Bernd Verdere describes seeing Prince. <laughs> it kind of blew yeah. his mind and changed his world and how he viewed <laughs> <laughs> um, so have you, how many years have you been actively involved in shape singing? I guess it's about 15 years now. Wow. You've been doing this in New Haven 15 years or no? Uh, we've been doing it in New Haven since 2000, I believe 11. And now you're trying to build it up during now that the pandemic and we've kind of seeing it going to the rear view mirror. Yeah. The whole, uh, regional and national community is rebuilding, uh, itself right now and trying to refigure out, uh, what it's going to be. So it's kind of an exciting moment. Do you think it'll change? I think in some ways it it has to change. Um, we'll there, there we'll see how. Uh, as I said, the the post pandemic moment is such an exciting opportunity for groups like ours just to rebuild themselves from scratch to see who comes in uh, and who sings with us because those are the people uh, if they keep singing long enough who are going to be the leaders of the community in the future. Am I wrong in thinking that unlike in disrupted industries or settings, there's something that's not going to change? Is it still going to be basically people just come and sing? Yeah, that is the and core the value. Yeah. There are, I mean, as the, the word sacred is in the title, the song you played is called Christian Soldier. There is a Christian element to that. Uh, but I think for many of us, including I identify as Jewish myself, um, but there is something profoundly religious in a non-sectarian way. That oh, I think gospel music. I love gospel music. Sure. I was just... Um, so you're also a founding member of the editorial board of Journal Mathematics and Music, and I've always been interested in that. Like when I, I haven't jogged for 40 years, but when I used to jog, it was always about music, and I was thinking about how when you jog, you get a rhythm, and it has you form musical ideas. How does math figure into that? Because then when you learn music and you learn the basic formal rules, you learn three, four times, six, you're four, four, and they have to kind of add up. And then when you learn to break the rules, if you're listening to Thelonious Monk and you learn how the time signatures kind of go in weird ways, how important is math to our singing and our music? Well, it's important and not important. It's not important in the sense that you don't need to understand anything about math to do music, right? Um, it is important in the sense that math helps us explain a lot about music, since our brains are essentially, you know, mathematical calculation engines at some level. A lot of what they do to sound is something that we can understand best by using mathematics. And when you're learning formal music before you learn to break the rules or improvise, correct? You're learning very precise mathematical sequences. 
You're supposed to keep the beat, right? Before you sure, change the yeah. beat. You're supposed to keep the beat. You're supposed to keep the scale. You're supposed to kind of, I mean, mathematical thinking helps us understand how at the beginning you hold certain things constant while you discover a proof. And then mm -hmm. once you discover, you kind of hold other things constant and you make your way up from there. And is that similar with music, the way that we have a structure and that's might be somewhat rigid and then we use that as a way to break free from rigidity and explore different dimensions you might not have thought of the same the way with a math proof? Yeah, I think mathematics and music both have that power. And for that reason, I mean, in ancient Greece, in ancient Baghdad, in ancient China, the disciplines of mathematics and music were considered in many cases to be the same. All right, let's, hear, an let's hear another example. I'm going to ask Harry Dross, our station manager, to put winter up winter is a, uh, you recorded this in um 2017 it's shape notes and um and uh and um if, if harry's um, so here it is from shape notes That was winter. When was that recorded? It says New Haven All Day Singing. Did you do an all day singing event? So we do an all day singing uh, every year uh, in at the third Sunday in April, which is uh, coming up this year on April 16th. Oh. Uh, so this was 10 years ago, I believe. Uh, so this was probably the 2013 version. The song we heard earlier was recorded in 2017. We're talking to Ian Quinn. This is an event where people come from uh, all of, from neighboring states and come sing with us. Oh, so it's wow. Group, and that's why we get that nice full sound. And we're talking about shape note singing, a.k.a. sacred harp singing, which anyone in New Haven could come do Tuesday night, March 14, 7, 9 p.m. at 469 College Street. Now, if they're not a Yale member of the Yale community, do they have to bring proof of vaccination? Um, I think we, they don't have to bring proof. We ask that people be vaccinated. We ask that people wear a mask. All right. Um, we do keep uh, contact tracing information. So we do ask that people. Wow, you're still doing contact. I remember contact tracing back in the dark ages of the early pandemic. Ian, how, how long has it been that you've been back singing since the pandemic? Uh, we've been back singing uh, not quite a year. All right. Uh, I think it's been since the fall. And you're, back, you're up to about 12 people, but hopefully we'll get a lot more people there tomorrow night. Let's hope so. I'll be in Texas, but uh, we'll oh, you'll be in Texas. 
we'll have a group of experienced singers there uh, ready to meet you. <laughs> right. Well, it's been so nice to chat with you, Ian. I think you sound like a really great guy, and it sounds like a great event they have at the Sacred Heart Singing. So glad this takes place in New Haven. It's fun to learn about it, and we'll invite everybody down. Thanks, Paul. Come and sing with us anytime. And how can people find out more about you or contact you about this? Uh, they can. If I if I put something in the chat, will that... Uh... Yeah, or if you could just email it to me, we'll put an article on the okay. Independent. I'll, I'll email it to you. Yeah. So we have a we have a, a little small rudimentary website that tells you all about when and where oh. our events are. All right. That sounds, uh, that sounds good. So Ian Quinn, Department Music Yale, and are you the undergraduate department or the graduate? Uh, we are both. We uh, give PhDs at the graduate level, but we also teach all the undergraduates. All right. Well, what a pleasure to meet you. Good, good, happy travels to Texas. Thanks, Paul. Hope to meet you again. Yale New Haven regular singing Tuesday night, 469 College Street, room 106, 7 to 9 p.m. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.